Hello, and welcome to the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and today I'm sitting here over the phone with Carl Gabriel York, who played Alan Yates in Cannibal Holocaust. How are you doing today, sir? I'm having a real good day. <laughs> That's good. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Um, so I guess my first question is, what is it that got you interested in acting? Well, that's a good question. Nobody's asked me that, actually. Um, 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 my great-grandfather was a uh, vaudeville actor. He debuted on Broadway in 1885. He played with some of the biggest names of the day. And um, his son went on to be the head of publicity at 20th Century Fox. That's where my father grew up. My father hated show business and hated Hollywood and hated the whole thing. So, but he kept telling me stories about his grandfather and being on stage and I just, you know, I just loved it. So my father having grown up in Hollywood was in the Air Force and they made him the liaison between the Air Force and Hollywood. So if you were doing a picture that had uh, and needed support from the Air Force. He was the one that read the script and determined whether or not the Air Force would support it. So we were living in Paris when I was a kid, and there was a movie called The Longest Day Shooting right outside of Paris. And he took us out on the set, and I was about mm, seven, maybe. And uh, we watched them shoot this scene. They did about six takes of this scene. And by the time the sixth take was done, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, the actor who was in that scene actually came down and met us. I had a brother and a sister. He kind of went down the row and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my brother said something like, you know, I want to be a nerdy guy, you know? And my sister said, you know, I want to be something else. And I said, I want to be an actor. So that's when it started. I was seven. That's awesome. And then uh, as you're, as you got involved, more involved with that, I believe you got into being on stage. And could you tell us a little bit about your acting career uh, leading up to Cannibal Holocaust? Uh, sure. I was in every play in high school. Um, my first professional audition, I was still in high school. I was 17 and I didn't get it. And shortly after that, I uh, moved to San Francisco. We were living outside of San Francisco and there was a, an improv company called uh, The Committee. And I started going to their improv workshops and joined the committee workshop, which was their, uh, you know, sort of minor leagues. And um, I must have done 200 or 300 totally improvised shows. The whole, the whole idea was we didn't set any material. We did everything uh, spur of the moment. And um, so I, I did that for quite a few years. Uh, went to college. Before I got out of college, I was working professionally in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in San Francisco. And then I went on the road with that. I did three national tours of that and went to New York and studied with Uta Hagen, who was one of the most famous acting teachers of the 20th century. And, um, and then I was uh, um, taking classes from a guy named Bill Wilson, who was a... a um, a commercial producer and he produced commercials and, and, and a casting director. And he called me, <clears throat> excuse me, on a Friday afternoon 
and asked me if I was available. And I said, yes. And he said, uh, are you willing to go to South America? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, get over here as soon as you can. And I said, well, who, who am I? What, what am I auditioning for? He said, just come the, as you are and bring a picture. And I did. And I, you know, I was uh, living on the east side and he was in Times Square. And I got into the office and there was an Italian man in there who um, took my picture and looked at it. And um, he had another picture next that he was looking at. And he looked at mine and he looked at the other one and he said, um, what size shoes do you wear? And I said, uh, 10 and a half. He said, oh, uh, why don't you wait in the other room? So I went in the other room and there was one more guy that came in who, uh, somebody who was actually a friend and he had the wrong size feet and they cast me that minute. So, um, so that was a Friday afternoon and my, uh, passport was still in California and I was supposed to fly out on Monday and, um, you know, my parents put my passport in the mail in the special overnight UPS mail, which at that point there wasn't a FedEx or there was no FedEx. There was no, you, you know, cell phones. It was a different world. And the, uh, but the pass, when it got to New York, it got lost in the, uh, in, in the post office. And I went over there. My father at the time was working for a, a United States Senator and he pulled that string to get those people to uh, find my passport and give it to me. And then uh, next thing I knew, I was on my way to Bogota. That's awesome. So <laughs> you were the right shoe size. <laughs> that, got, that got you the role? Four years of high school drama, two years of Uta Hagen, <laughs> <laughs> studying, acting classes, 200 or 300 totally improvised shows and it came down to what size my shoes were and the reason for that was that they'd hired somebody else to do the, the role in fact he was the best friend of uh one of the other actors perry perkinett they were in class together in new york at uh i forget where they were but um they got hired together but when they got to the airport to go down there his friend uh who i guess had read the script maybe um decided that he couldn't go and he could and he bailed on him uh, right at the last minute at the airport so they'd already bought costumes for him and um the direction that this guy in new jersey had gotten the, the italian guy who was at bill wilson's office was find someone who looks kind of like this but but who fits the costumes and that was the most important thing of course when i got down there and um you know they bought in boots for the, they had bought Boots for the button is not a word, just in case you're listening to this podcast. Do so you hear me say that? That's not actually a word. So uh, I, uh, the boots that they got for the other actor didn't actually fit me. So, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things. Luckily, I had my own boots. <laughs> so it's my understanding that production had already begun by the time you were hired to play Alan Yates. And I was wondering what you could tell us about your experience arriving on set. Um, that's a true story. They were down there for about two weeks before I got there. So a lot of, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say a lot. The most gruesome thing in the movie, which is to me, the turtle had already happened and I had no idea. I didn't know about it. Um, I got to Bogota 
I spent two nights there because there were only two planes a week to Leticia where they were shooting. And um, I had, uh, like I said, I lived in Paris when I was a child, so I'd, I spoke some French, but I'd also taken Spanish in school. And But when I got down there, uh, for some reason, every time I opened my mouth, it came out in French. So as I'm going around Bogota, which is a very dangerous city, you know, I'm talking to people in French and they're looking at me like, we know you're an American. And um, now you're talking to us in French, which makes, makes you like an asshole. What the <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? And um, and and that, the, the, the time that was the most discouraging was I fell in love with this girl um, who had the most beautiful eyes. And I tried to talk to her and um, and it didn't work out. And her boyfriend wasn't didn't appreciate it anyway. So um, uh, what it was like getting to the set was. Um, kind of terrifying i i tried to i was trying to hold it together they took me from our little bungalow they had me uh fly down with a guy named salvatore who turned out to be a real asset in the whole thing because he spoke american english because he'd grown up next to an army base in italy and um he uh he picked me up at the hotel and took me to the airport and we flew down together and we got off the plane and went to the hotel and then took me, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon. They took me immediately down to the river, put me in a boat, drove up the river. And, um, and then uh, about 10 or 15 minutes up the river, we took a right turn up a little tributary. And uh, that's where we were into the, uh, the canopy of the jungle and, um, and near the riverbanks. And you could hear all the things that make you think you're watching wild, you know, Jack Hanna's wild animal show, um, except it's real. And then stuff is floating down the river. I see this weird stuff floating down the river. Uh, a dead monkey went by. Uh, uh, that was kind of weird. And um, then it got really weird because a, a human leg floated uh, floated by. Oh and, um, and then, so at this point, I had not read the script there was no script available for me and um so i had really i really didn't have any idea what this movie was about all i knew was that if i made it back alive it would be a good story that's all i knew so so we get to the set and you know we go around this band and then there's a there's a movie set and if you've been in the business you recognize a movie set right away and uh, it was all muddy and i got off the boat and ruggiero looks at me and he goes oh my star what a face what a wonderful face okay costumes makeup get him a costume let's go so uh they put a costume on me they handed me a uh, a camera I still didn't know that this was a found footage, uh, you know, format. And, um, and they, and, and they had me standing over a pit where there was a guy in the pit and his face was all ashen white. And the shot was, he had been, he was the guide and his, he'd been bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake. And he told them, hack off my leg so that the poison doesn't reach my heart. Well, that was the leg I saw floating down the river. It was a prosthetic leg. I didn't know that, you know, until, okay. And then, and then, so they had him buried in a pit so he couldn't see his leg was still actually on him. Uh, but the, but the, but, you know, the poison still killed him. So this is him actually dying, even though we, you know, 
uh, you know, mutilated them and stuff like that. That was the first shot that I did. And, um, and then, uh, finished up the day, went back to our cabins and that's when Ruggiero gave me a script and said, I couldn't keep it, but he wanted me to read it. And I made the mistake of reading it, uh, while I was eating dinner. <laughs> um, one of the most controversial aspects of Cannibal Holocaust is its multiple scenes of unsimulated animal cruelty, um, which, from what I've read, was not shared with the cast prior to shooting. And I was wondering what your reaction was when you realized that animals were actually going to be killed for the picture. So, like I said, I didn't know uh, that they, they'd done the turtle. And, I, and, and I, I haven't spoken to Perry probably in 40 years, so don't know what his reaction was. He was the one who killed the turtle. Um, and, and he won't, uh, he won't be interviewed. He won't, he doesn't want anybody. He doesn't want to talk to anybody about cannibal Holocaust. Um, I, I sort of think that it might be because he did that. I, I sort of think that. And then there's Robert Kerman who, um, when I started going to, uh, to, uh, conventions and the first few I sat next to him and he kept telling everybody, you know, that, that we, they should have killed animals in that movie. And well, he actually, you know, did one, I think, I think he killed something, but he had a lot of regret about it. So that's just a, a way of making me uh, look good. Okay. I'm just telling you that so that I look good. Right. <laughs> because, um, because I think I look pretty good on this one. <laughs> um, I, I, um, so here's here's the thing about being an actor it brings you up against yourself and what you really who you really are and and the question as as an actor is am i able to show that to you am i able to show who i really am to a camera or to an audience and um and where is the line where is that line so now we get to your question. I'm sorry, I'm so verbose, but that's just everything has many layers in this in this context. Um, I didn't even know we were killing animals on in this picture until uh, they did the monkey, um, and I, I'm not sure it's even in the movie. Is that in the movie where they chop the monkey's head, you know, forehead off, and crack his head open? Yeah, and, they... and the guy eats his brains. That's in the movie. Yeah. Okay, so that'll tell you how much I know about this movie. Um, uh, I finally got a copy of it in 1999. It was a dupe of a dupe of a dupe, and it, uh, you know because it had been banned everywhere. And I, I did a, I did a part in a movie for a guy in Hollywood who was a big fan, and he sent me this thing, and um, I uh, watched most of it on fast forward. Well, because the you know the, the transfer of the, uh, the soundtrack from PAL to NPSC, whatever that is, mm -hmm. you know, made us sound like we were Chippendale, you know, <laughs> characters. We were like, we're going out in the jungle and we're going to find some camels. Like that's how that's what the soundtracks would like, you know. And I could, anyway, uh, I, I I really didn't watch it very well. I, I've never actually, you know. Anyway, um, okay, so we're there. We got to take some time off because they were going to shoot this guy doing the monkey and. Uh, when I tell you there's no place to go um, when you're on a set in the Amazon jungle, um, that's pretty true. You either take a 45-minute ride in a boat back to the, uh, to the little town, if they'll give you the boat, 
or you just sit and you don't go wandering off in the jungle. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so we're huddled up, uh, you know, behind this tree and they told us what was going to happen. And it was the only time that there was uh, in my time on the set that there was ever a mutiny of any sort. And there was actual talk of shutting down the production by the actors mostly. Um, uh, there was only, so there was Salvatore, he spoke English. There was the cameraman who spoke some French so I could talk to him, but the rest of the guys I couldn't talk to. So I, I had the actors who, uh, only one of, you know, who, who spoke not very good English. And so we kind of huddled together and said, is this really what's going to happen? I mean, they're actually going to kill this monkey. And then they told me about the turtle and then I knew they were going to do the monkey. So, so that was disgusting. And, uh, I think. Uh, what's her name? Might have thrown up, uh, Francesca. I might have thrown up. Jeez, what am I thinking? So here's how it went. The guy hits the monkey in the forehead with a machete, cracks the monkey's skull open, and then they had a fake skull with some gray tuna fish in it, I think, or some kind of fish, yeah. right next to him that he could pick up and then eat that and pretend like he's eating the monkey's brains. Well, this guy wasn't going to let... Uh, <laughs> an opportunity of a lifetime go by he went and ate the real brains he just like oh yeah you know and he like loaded those in and then uh when they did it again was um one of those galvanizing kind of moments where you kind of know who you really are you know mm -hmm. uh i knew who i really was and i knew there was no way to kind of get out of this thing but uh i also knew that i didn't have to do everything they told me to do. That's the other thing about being an actor. When they tell you to do something, you know, um, that's your job is to somehow make that happen. And if you have some emotional blocks in the way, then it's their job to break down. It's the Ruggiero's job to break that down so that you do what he wants you to do. Um, that's why I say you come up against who you really are uh, every day on a set, actually. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I was curious because it seems like you kind of went into the movie kind of blind. Like, you didn't have a script, you didn't have any of that stuff, and suddenly they're killing animals, real animals on, on camera. Did you feel at any point that <laughs> questioned whether you were you were safe there, if they were going to be hurting people in that movie too? Well, I did. Um, um, I think after The Monkey is when I started... Um carrying all my money and all and my plane ticket out and my passport with me everywhere i went <laughs> because i had a fantasy <laughs> i mean if you really think about it it's a fantasy right um i had a fantasy that i was gonna somehow run through the jungle back to leticia <laughs> and climb on an airplane get that get out of there as they were uh, like hauling after me trying to kill me so um so uh, uh, so, no, I, I actually didn't know if it was going to be a snuff movie until, uh, I'm trying to think of who the first one to die was. Was that, uh, Jack? Yeah, Jack's the Jack's first. The, Jack's the one. first. Yeah. Yeah, once he died and, um, and, uh, then showed up at dinner, and I was, you know, I was pretty sure that it wasn't a snuff movie. <laughs> But, but but that's part of the magic of Ruggiero. It's part of the magic. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people have said a lot of things about him. But if you look at the kind of magic trick that he pulls on the audience, which is he made everybody think that the actors were being snuffed out, when in reality it was the animals that were being snuffed out on film. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a that's there's some intellectual juice to that that I can't even put into words that I think is fascinating. It's just fascinating. It's a fascinating thing to do to the mind of an audience. Yeah. So yes, you're right. I didn't have a script and all of this was unfolding day by day because I couldn't really, you know, I read that script at dinner and then, uh, and then all I could do was what, well, what you usually do when you're shooting a movie. Um, um, well, that's not true. If you're a principal in a movie, you have your own script. If you're a day player in a movie, you show up and they hand you something and that's what you're doing that day. So that's pretty much what it was like for me day by day. So talking a little bit about kind of Ruggiero's magic, there's kind of like a rumor that um, the cast had to sign contracts where they agreed to stay out of the public's eye for one year and uh, to give the impression that everyone was really killed in the film. And I was wondering if you could give us some verification of whether that's true or not. No, you know, I don't talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so one of the first scenes in the film to show your character's cruelty is when you guys enter a village and then walk up to a pig that's tied to a post and shoot it and then proceed to burn the entire place to the ground. And that scene actually involved the native actors having to remain for a pretty prolonged period of time inside of a a burning hut. And I was wondering if you could give us some more details or context about kind of the behind the scenes of shooting that scene. Yeah, I can tell you some things. First of all, you just told me something that I didn't know, that the pig was tied to a post is that right yeah it's like like chained to a post like a dog like you would chain a dog to a post like that at least that's what i recall i think it's i think it's tied to a tied to a post okay that you know okay so that was the moment of truth for me um there were there there were there was more than one but that was one of them that might have been the big one because rogero wanted me to shoot that pig and uh i said so I'm going to pretend to shoot the pig. Do we have a blank? What are we doing here? Is it going to, they're going to be a report from the gun? And then, because I had this big monologue I was supposed to do right after I shot the pig. And he said, no, no, it's a live round, and you're going to actually shoot the pig. So all of that explanation I just did a few minutes ago about uh, how I come out looking good, <laughs> uh, this is where it, pa- it paid off. And where it really pays off is I didn't shoot that pig on, on camera. Yeah, I, I did. I didn't do that, and I can live with myself not doing that. And I don't have to go to shows like Robert Kerman did and protest too much. And I don't have to hide like Perry does. And I don't know why Perry's hiding. I shouldn't say that. That's ascribing motive to somebody I don't really know. But um, yeah, no, I said no, and um, and Ruggiero was oh, Italian. He's Italian, so he didn't erupt. He didn't erupt. He just said. Okay, here's here's how it went. He went like this. Carl, Alan, in this scene, you sweep through the town. You shoot the pig. Then you say these things to the camera. Then you give the cue and and Perry, he sets fire to to the thing. And then he says, and you have to get your lines right because I have only one pig. And I'm like, uh, I can't shoot the pig. He goes, Luca, in this scene, you sweep through the town. You shoot the pig. <laughs> Gabriel, they, they, at that point, my name was Gabriel York. Okay, Gabriel, he, 
he uh, he he does his lines, and then we burn the town. Because Luca grew up on a farm, and Luca, by the way, now as you may or may not know, is in the Italian Parliament. He's also not interested in talking about cannibal holocaust, <laughs> probably because he's got he's got a life. But um, anyway, so Luca's like, yeah, I grew up on a farm. I can shoot the pig. You know, here's the other thing. I rode, that pig was in my boat on the way to the set that morning. Me and the pig, we were friends. He was my pal. So I didn't want to kill him. So so he had the script guy following me around all morning. I was so nervous, you know, trilling me on these lines. I had about two paragraphs of stuff I had to say about something. And, um, and then uh, we did a rehearsal. I did fine. And we did another rehearsal. And I did fine. And... Um, and then and then we did it live and um you know we sweep through the town and then uh the village and then you know uh i come face to face with the camera and right behind me i hear the report from the rifle and then i hear ow like that the pig going ow that hurt mm -hmm. and then my mind goes blank and i just look at the camera like uh I, I, I like I say I haven't looked at it, so I'm not sure what it looks like. But all I could actually see was Rogero <laughs> 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 standing behind the camera, shaking his fist at me. You fucked it up! I only got one pig, you fucker! And I'm like, ah. and then I just called out the cue for Jack to burn the village, and he burned the village. Okay, so now we're the part where these poor sods, who, um, you know, to be. A, uh, a a native of that area uh, to be in a movie uh, was something that happened maybe every five years, every ten years. It, who knows? I mean, while we were in Letitia, they got their first telephone installed in that town. It was 1,800 miles from the Atlantic, and I don't know how far it was from Bogota, but it's deep, deep, deep in the heart of the uh, Amazon forest. So these kind of things and um are really weird and new and exciting i think for them i don't think i don't think they really had an understanding of what the process was and what was actually happening so when they were in and i'll never forget the look on their faces the guys especially there was a kind of a young kid um who who wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave you know and the, the hut's burning and the hut's burning my heart's pounding and i'm like oh my god i've really you know, the monkey is one thing, the pig is another thing, but to see human beings like burned to death, this, I, I don't think I can do this, you know? And then he, he was a brave kid and I think he might've been the last one out. And it was not, it, my memory of it is it wasn't long before, you know, it was a matter of seconds before the hut uh, collapsed after he left. So um, I don't know if you're gonna ask about the love scene or the rape scene but I'm going to tell you something that happened after the love scene that I think relates to this, which is, you know, the love scene we did in the bamboo hut. Mm -hmm. And we did five takes of it. And, um, and then we broke for lunch. It seems like every time we did something that I really didn't want to do, uh, we, as soon as we were done, we broke for lunch. So we broke for lunch and, you know, they got the same lunch we did. It was, you know, uh, they probably got, that's probably how they got paid, you know, uh, like a, a really dry cheese sandwich. And um, uh, it wasn't very good lunch, you know, but I'm standing in line to get my cheese sandwich. And these guys who had been watching this, they're in the shot. They're, at, they're in the river 
fishing while she and I are doing this in the hut. And, um, and they all kind of uh, gathered around me. And one of them spoke a little bit of English. And he came up and he kind of nudged me and I said, hi. And he goes, you know, he spreads his fingers out and he goes, five times, five times. And I'm like, five times. What is that? Is that, that's not French. No. Is it Spanish? Is it Maya? What the fuck is five times? I don't know what, he goes, five times, five times. And then he does the universal arm movement for intercourse. (laughs) And we'd done, we (laughs) We had done five takes of the scene. I went, oh, five times. Oh, you mean like, oh, five times. And I started to explain it to him, you know. I started to explain that, you know, this is just movie acting. And and then I thought, no, you know what? You're right. I did do that five times. I'm a white god. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. If you bring your sister around, I'll do it five more times. I don't think I said that to him. But, um that's kind of how they saw what was happening, you know? So I'm not sure what they thought when they were in the, in the hut that was about to burn down. They had to have had sort of a different perspective on that than we did. And they were trying to please the director, I think, as we all were, but um, I would not have pleased the director as much as that kid who was the last one out. <laughs> I think he probably wanted to make sure that he his face was on camera. Probably. He's probably a big movie star in Columbia right now. Um, speaking about you working with uh, Francesca Chiardi, who played Faye Daniels, your girlfriend, um, it's my understanding that there was a lot of tension between the two of you uh, kind of shooting that scene. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more details about that. Yeah, it wasn't really between me and her. It was more between her and Ruggiero because he wanted her to, you know, like I said, it brings you up against yourself. And 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 the wonderful thing about acting is that you get to do things you never knew you could do, or you never thought you would do. And there's a liberation in that. But on the way to the liberation is this terror, you know. And uh, no matter who you are. So one reason why actors turn out to be really crazy a lot of times. <laughs> is because they have to break down all of those walls that the normal people use all day, every day to keep the private stuff private. And as an actor, your job is to show the private stuff or, or, or allow people to project their private stuff onto you. So, um, so Francesca wasn't, uh, a very experienced actress. I, I don't, I don't think she'd done much, uh, up until then. And, uh, I don't think she'd ever been on camera. And <clears throat> when it got to that scene, which I think I've already said, I, I, I really didn't want to do that scene. I told him, I actually told him, I said, here, I got an idea. Cause I'd been at the swimming pool with all the guys on the crew and their little speedos, mm-hmm. you know? And I said, so this is the movies, right? This is the magic of the movies. So here's what you do. You do the, you know, the establishing shot. And then for the close up, you know, I'll drop my pants. And then for the close up, you like, you know, put that guy in there because I've seen him in his speedo. That's going to be a much better movie because I'm just a little, little white guy with a little <laughs> white thing, you know, which isn't going to be freaking out anywhere during this this adventure here because I'm terrified. He's like, get up there and do the movie. So we do it once. I have to say that the 
fact that it was a bamboo hut <laughs> was really painful because the, the floor of it was knobby and un, you know uh, uh, uneven and it had all these knobs in it and uh, it was very painful but um and 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 francesca and i hadn't really worked it out she actually wanted to you know uh rehearse out in the jungle with me before we did this <laughs> but I, I'd been out in the jungle and I'd seen what happens in the jungle and I didn't want to take my pants down out there. So we didn't do that. And, uh, and which might've been a good idea actually, given that we, I, I had, like I said, I haven't really watched this movie. I'm guessing that we look like total strangers who are afraid of each other. I'm <laughs> just guessing. <laughs> so, so after the first thing, after the first take, Ruggiero says, when you take her shirt off, I want you to show her tits to the camera. So this shot was done MOS, which means without sound, which is Eric von Stroheim, if you're a historian. So, you know, they couldn't hear what we were saying because um, there was no sound. And um, I pulled her shirt up and I start arranging her so that the camera can see her. And uh, she got mad. She's like, what are you doing? And I said, you know, Rogero told me uh, to show your tits to the camera. She's like, fuck Rogero, I'm not doing that. And um, I'm not sure we even finished that take. And like I said, sometimes it's the director's job to break down those walls so that you do what he needs you to do, not do what makes you comfortable. And he shouted at her. Italians are pretty shouty anyway, but they echo from the canopy it's like everybody heard it not everybody understood it because it was in, in italian so i didn't understand what he said but all i know is when she came back she was done you know here's what directors have to do they have to make you cry <laughs> <laughs> once they make you cry that I mean that's when you're letting go of who you thought you were going to be and who who you think you are and all that stuff you cry enough and you start being to do anything and after that she was uh she was very compliant um, there was a lot of tension with her on the set with other people. Uh, I noticed, um, I, you know, we didn't, I don't want to say we didn't get along on the set because I think we did. And I've gotten along with her much better when I see her at shows, uh, than, than there, uh, when you're, when you're an actor and you're, um, relying on another actor to give you back something that you need in order to execute the scene properly. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, I just want to say it's difficult when, when they can't do that or when they don't, when they don't give you back what you want or expect or what you've rehearsed. So I had those kind of issues there, but, um, but I, like I said, I think the tension in that particular scene was between her and Ruggiero and her own self-image, you know, who she thought she was. Did it feel like you kind of had to carry the scene a little bit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the script said, Alan, you know, uh, Faye is like laying around in the, in, the, in the bungalow and Alan pops up and reaches for her and Faye tries to get away. So that's what I expected was going to happen. So, uh, you know, we start the scene, I pop up and she kind of just slumps over <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, you're trying to get away. Ha <laughs> You can't get away that easy. And then she just slumped over a little bit more, maybe two or three inches. And I'm like, 
maybe this passes for passion in Italy. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. Uh, so, like I said, I've done lots and lots of improv, and I was ready for anything. And I, I yeah, you, you put it properly, I think. I did feel like I carried that. I, 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 I'm not sure I'm interested in her point of view if she thinks the same thing because I, uh, I like it when people like me. <laughs> <laughs> so if she doesn't like what I'm saying, I'm not sure I would. <laughs> I'd like to hear her say that, but um, she's pretty feisty. She's a pretty feisty person. Is it true that you guys had to shoot all scenes involving nudity twice, uh, once with clothing and once without, so that you guys could market yeah. the film to other countries? Yeah, that was for the Arab countries. That must have been really challenging. It was, well, it was pretty hilarious in the uh, in the rape scene, for instance. You know, to jump on top of a girl when she's got all her clothes and you've got all your clothes on, and pretend like something's happening. You know, <laughs> but that was another one. I didn't even want to do that. That was one of those that. You know, are 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 all men rapey somewhere deep down inside? Maybe, maybe, probably. Do we want to show that to the world? Probably not. Most of us, we don't do that. You know. <laughs> um, so I had a. So here's a confession. I did my best to, you know, those days you wake up and tell your mom, I, I don't want to go to school. I feel sick because you got a test at school. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I did that day. That's what I did that day. I woke up. I went, oh, God, I feel really sick. I can't go. They go, okay, well, you can just stay here, and you'll get on the next boat. Like, mm, uh, I don't want to get on that boat. Um, but I also had, uh, this was weird, There, uh, the night before, no, two nights before, we were sitting out on the, the patio in front of the main hotel in town, and a dog, a dog went down the street, crying and dying and died on the street, just walking down the street going, oh, and then he died. And a whole bunch of people laughed. They thought that was hilarious. Um, uh, I didn't. And that dog was there for a couple of days. And then the um, the Colombian army came to town because the pres El Presidente was coming to town in order to install this telephone that I mentioned earlier. And uh, cleaning up the streets for El Presidente's visit, the dog disappeared. Well, that was the that night that uh, I didn't know the dog had disappeared. Uh, up until that time, I had only eaten like fish out of the river. And that night, I decided to go another street over back into the town, two streets over, where they had uh, steaks, and I had a steak and. When I felt sick the next morning, I thought on the way home, I saw that the dog was gone. And I thought, uh oh, did I eat that dog? <laughs> you know? And then I got sick the next morning and I'm like, is this psychological? Can I want to do thing? Or I hope I ate the dog so that I'm really sick so that I don't ever have to rape this little girl. You know? Well, raping that little girl, of course, leads to the, you know, the, the poster of the movie of her, the chick on a stick shot. Uh, and of all the, uh, comments I've ever gotten on my performance in this movie. Most of them center around that moment where I'm blabbing something, I'm going blah, blah, blah. And then somebody goes, oh, the camera's on. And I and I turn to her and I go, oh, this is horrible, horrible. And in the immediate switch that I do there, everyone's like, oh, you're such a great actor. It's like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying there. But um, um, yeah, you can tell I'm I'm older now, and I can't quite keep track of what I'm talking about. What else you got? 
So later on in the movie, uh, there's two disturbing scenes that are presented back to back. First, uh, your film crew recording a dying woman uh, infested with worms alongside a riverbank. And then a scene where a pregnant woman is forced to have an abortion and then is stoned to death. And I was wondering what it was like to shoot these scenes and work alongside the native actors that were involved in them. Well, that's a good question that you need to ask somebody else because I wasn't there those days. (laughs) (laughs) They did did a really good job at uh, making you involved in those scenes even though you weren't there. Oh, really? Yeah. It seems like the entire time you're, you're there. Okay, so I guess one of the questions I have is what was your experience like off camera how did you get along with everybody what was it like to work with Ruggiero and um, what were like the living conditions like when you guys weren't filming well the living conditions were I'll take those in reverse order were uh, just fine you know if if you um, if you took a vacation package to Leticia you would have ended up at the place we were staying it was probably you know uh, eight or ten bungalows surrounding a swimming pool and there was, uh, you know, one paved road that went through Leticia. There's many more than that now. I've looked at it on Google Earth. And uh, up the road, there was a, uh, a three-story hotel that uh, some people stayed in. But uh, so one, one Saturday, the planes came in on Saturday, uh, Wednesday and Saturday. One Saturday after we'd done shooting and I, uh, I was sitting out in front of there having a beer or something. And um, this woman comes out of the hotel and says... Um, do you speak Spanish? And I'm like, maybe, you know? And she says, um, the electricity keeps going off and the water keeps going off. Can you ask him about that? <laughs> and so I went in and I conveyed that to the guy at the hotel desk. And he's like, oh yeah, well, here's the hours when we have water and here's the hours when we have electricity. So that was sort of the living condition there. <laughs> um, the Jorge, who was the guy who was dying in the very first scene that I shot, he was the greatest guy in the world. He spoke good English, and he was just really welcoming and happy to be part of the... It was kind of like Ringo in the Beatles. I'm just glad to be part of the band, you know? And he um, and he was very... Um, uh, he drove me around, Leticia. And I'll never forget this. He's driving down that one paved street, and he goes... See, look, we got the hotel, and we got the bodega, and over there in about six months, we'll have a movie theater. He said, see, there's everything you could ever want is right here in Leticia. <laughs> and I've just come from New York City, and um, I, you know, I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him there's things that people want that you haven't even imagined that are not here in Leticia. So, you know, the, um, the little waitresses in the... Um, in the dining room at our, at our, I was in the cabanas. Um, they were, I called them the piranhas. They were kind of scary, you know. I just had a feeling that, um, you know, if I asked, uh, or even if I didn't, they they would come and visit me and uh, make all my dreams come true. Uh, <laughs> but I wasn't quite sure what I would be bringing home to my girlfriend, so I didn't do that. And, um, you know, like the worst thing you can ever say to your partner is. Uh, you know, honey, I think you need to go to the doctor, you know, (laughs) you just don't want to have to put yourself in that position. So, uh, the crew, uh, after, so after I wouldn't shoot the pig and this might be, what do they call that? There's some kind of bias that there's a name for, and it's where you project upon somebody else 
somebody else says, you know, pass the salt, and you hear, uh, I heard you were fucking my wife. Okay, so, because you are fucking his wife. Okay, so, after I wouldn't shoot the pig, I, I thought that the uh, rest of the crew, like, my manhood had diminished in their eyes. And I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that they even knew I wouldn't shoot the pig now that we get to it, you know? I'm not sure that there was any manhood there to begin with, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, I, I did feel a little bit of a change there when, when I wouldn't shoot the pig. And um, that's the kind of thing that kind of narrows down the focus of what you're doing, that I'm not there to, to please the crew and because the crew is unpleasable anyway. These are guys that are there at six o'clock and they're at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and um, they're just grumpy anyway. They're not sleeping. So. Uh, I am, I was there to please Ruggiero. And as long as I felt like I was doing that, you know, I, I felt like I was doing my job. Does that answer any of your question? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, good. Um, you talked a little bit about the rape scene and I was wondering if we could just go into a little bit more depth about that. So that's a really unsettling scene and it looked like it was really challenging to pull off. And I was just wondering, was that scene choreographed? What was the setup like? Was everyone aware of the extreme nature of that scene? Um, and I, I'm particularly curious about that that native girl. Was she aware of of what was going to happen there? Well, hard to know what she was aware of, but boy, boy, is she a real good actress. Mm -hmm. I mean, for her to sit up on that pole motionless for as long as she did, uh, I don't think I could do that. Um, although, you know what? Ruggiero sent me a script that he, you know, a treatment. For, you know, he's always tried to make a sequel to Cannibal Holocaust, and I've always claimed that it should be that Alan Yates didn't die. He hooked up with all the Nazis in Brazil or in Argentina and had been doing medical experiments on children with Mengele. I don't know how well you know your history, but he was the Nazi doctor who did medical experiments. Uh -huh. Anyway, that's what I thought the sequel should be, and because I wanted to be in it. Uh, Ruggiero had another one where the cast and crew of Cannibal Holocaust goes back to Letitia and there's people there who resent uh, whatever we did there. And uh, this time, instead of hunting down Campbell's, it's the Campbell's hunting down us. And then at the end or somewhere in the middle, I guess he's probably the last one to die in this treatment, but uh, somewhere in there, uh, Alan Yates gets stuck up on a pole like that. That's what, um, that's when I thought, Oh, I got to lose some weight, man. I can't, I can't be a big whale up on the pole like that. There was some talk back in 2005 and 2006 of of Ruggiero coming out with a sequel called Cannibal Metropolitina. And I think uh -huh. that might be what you're talking about because um, everyone was really oh, excited uh -huh. excited yeah. about that and then it kind of fell through. So that, that Yeah, would... his funding, he couldn't get the funding, he told me. I think he <laughs> thought he had it at one point. That's awesome. At that point, how old is he, right? <laughs> and uh, are you going to put your money in a in a movie in the humid, hot, humid jungle where with a 75 year old guy at the helm. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know, but movies are studios anyway. They, they're, they're not banking on stars. They don't give a shit who the star is. They care who the director is because the director is the only one on the set who can actually get it in the can. So, so you're, when you're betting on a movie, you're betting on the director anyway. Where were we? We were at uh, the rape scene. So I don't know what she knew. All I know is that she was totally in. She was totally committed. And the, the girl, she was about 14. And um, 
it is a disturbing it's a disturbing metaphor for a lot of things too like imperialism you know and stuff like that and uh which the whole movie is actually but yeah i, I didn't really know quite what was happening although i'd read that part of the script um but you, you never quite know what's what it's really going to look like until you get on the set so i got on the set and um Oddly enough, you know, so we're going to do this on the riverbank. And here's one of the weird things that you never think of about the Amazon. There's no rocks in the Amazon. It's, there's, there's a lot of vegetation, um, but there's no rocks. So if you take a pole and you shove it down in the mud on the riverbank, you can just keep shoving it. It'll just keep going. You know, there's nothing really down there to stop it. And so there's all this grassy part where we were going to do this scene and i think i'm the last one to get on her is that right yeah i think you I are. don't know if you see so right there that doesn't make sense i'm the leader of the pack why would i be the last one on i should be the first one on okay <laughs> that's just a little joke it's not much of a joke but uh so i guess uh luca had his fun and jack had his fun and then it was my turn and the whole time i'm like uh you know, I've got to give myself over to this because this is what's happening today. And I, I guess I pulled my pants off and I jumped down on her and then she does something with her head and clipped me in the jaw Oh man! and actually chipped one of my front teeth. So now my face is doing this thing like, you know, like, oh, like that. And I'm still not quite in, you know? I'm still not quite in. I'm still holding back as a human, as a person who wouldn't do this in front of everybody. And, um, and then Faye comes over because she sees me and she's jealous and she pulls me off. And, and I sat down, my bare butt just went right into the mud and that stuff squishes up inside, you know, between your legs and everything. And for some reason, that was the moment that just, I was enraged. I was just, the rage came out. And I have her, I, in, my, in my memory, I threw her Faye about 15 feet away. <laughs> and I, I probably just pushed her, you know, but it's like the rage, it was like, oh, you know, the Hulk. And then, and then I jumped back on this girl and I'm like, now you're gonna get it. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's what I needed in order to finish a rape scene apparently i don't know does that mean that rapists are full of rage maybe um that's what i had to do to to make that scene finish and um and then we had to do it again with our clothes on <laughs> <laughs> but the whole point of telling you about the the rocks and there's no rocks uh on the in the amazon is that it started out as a nice little grassy patch and within a few like two or three wiggles you know it was just a mud. It was just mud. So it was all mud. And then from then on in the movie, because we shot chronologically, um, you know, we had to recreate all the mud that we got on us in that scene. And um, that scene also led to another moment I never thought I would uh, do, which is, uh, you know, I, I took all my clothes off and went wading to the Amazon River. There's so many reasons not to do that. <laughs> especially when you're already not hung like an Italian, you know, but, but, you know, but it's not just the piranha and the barracudas biting off pieces of your body that you're worried about there. They told me about the amoebas 
that will squeeze up into any orifice and then eat you from the inside out. <laughs> and luckily, I got no amoebas. But the script guy did. Uh, he got sick uh, on the set and had to be flown back to Bogota. And it, apparently, it was the amoebas, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, that scene was, uh, you know, what 2020 has been like for you. I don't know what your politics are, but, you know, after a while, you're just so numb. You can't believe everything that's happened already. And then another one happens, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, RBG dies or yeah. all of a sudden, you know, this, the sky is filled with smoke for a month. You know, it's like, I got, I could never have seen this coming. And then you find one more way to endure what you might have thought was unendurable. Uh, that part of how that rape scene was for me <laughs> certainly added to, you know, the resilience that I had to have when I wouldn't shoot the egg. God, as I'm telling this story, I'm realizing, Jesus, this was a trauma. This whole thing was very traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I can laugh about it and stuff, but it was, uh, you know, I came back to New York, uh, I'd lived with somebody for four years, and uh, after I got back from Cannibal Holocaust, I, I, we broke up within a month. I, I left in a, a month later. I think there's a connection. <laughs> I think being in those conditions is definitely definitely changes a person. I mean, I, I've been to Africa before, and just spending some time um, in a in a different country like that. I mean, I didn't do anything yeah. to the extent that you did, but it really changes you as a person and you kind of look at the world differently when you go back to, back to the States. Yeah, you sure do. You get back to the States and you look around at people and it's, they look different. Yeah. I don't know how. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about the rape scene. Um, and then following after that is the impaled scene, which you've talked about a little bit. I was wondering if you could give us, I mean, Rogero got into some legal trouble because of that scene, just because of how realistic it looks. And I was wondering if uh -huh. you could kind of pull back the curtain a little bit for us and tell us how that effect was pulled off um, because it is such a powerful image. So um, before I tell you that, I'll tell you this. I, uh, yeah, every once in a while I do a personal appearance. I, uh, I did one of the Egyptian theater in Hollywood and there's a little theater in San Francisco that shows cannibal Holocaust at midnight every once in a while. Um, so they asked me to come and so I went to this one, it's midnight in San Francisco and, um, and I brought with me a, uh, a gigantic pole with a big spike on the end of it. <laughs> and I didn't count on like who the audience was really going to be, you know, I just thought this is great. Remember I've done a lot of improv, right? Okay. So, so I'm like, uh, so, so I get up on the stage and I said, you know, I'm me. And you're about to see this movie. And I know some of you have already seen the movie. Well, they'd already sat through probably two movies by that time and smoked a whole hell of a lot of pot. <laughs> so they're all like real fuzzy anyway. So I'm not sure they understood what I was talking about. But I brought the poll out and I said, if you've seen this movie, you know what this is. And I can tell you, this is the original poll from Cannibal Holocaust. I saved it. <laughs> and I... I expected when I said that to get the reaction that you just gave me a little bit of like, what, you know, like, really? <laughs> so I said, uh, can I get a volunteer to show you how we did this? And everyone's still sitting there going, uh, what's he talking about? 
And this girl goes, I'll do it. She had no idea what it was. And I did an illusion. I, I did an illusion where I had her stand there and look up and open her mouth. I put the pole behind her so that it, you know, I had her kind of squat down and so that it looked like in profile she was being impaled on the pole. And the reaction I got from that was nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I was amused. And I finally realized that was the whole point. So anyway, how'd they do the pole? They, they got a nice sturdy pole and they put a bicycle seat on it. Uh, and then the piece of uh, that pole that's coming out of her mouth is made of balsa wood. It's very light. And they had it wrapped around the back of her neck so it would stay there. And they put her up there. And I, I, I said, I swear, I have no idea how she... Uh, and they didn't they put some blood coming down her cheeks or something? I don't know. It's on the poster. I should I should know it by now. But um, yeah, uh, that's what we did, and we shot it uh, more than once. And she never moved a muscle. Um, uh, I, I often wonder what happened to her, and if doing that had any that maybe echoed what happened in the movie. Because of course, what happened. In, the movie is that we had defiled her by raping her so that's obviously her fault which is still common in many you know mid-eastern countries and if you read the bible you can find uh you know uh uh you know some support there for blaming anybody who's been raped it's their fault so i'm wondering if having done that in this movie actually had that kind of an echo in her real life she was only 14 I think that's what they told me. That's that's what I've heard is that she it, was you know, it, it, it's one, yeah, it's one of, it's one of those images that makes you say, Ruggiero Deodato, for no matter what he you think of the content of what he's doing, he knows how to get an image that that never leaves your mind. That's true. Yeah. Um, Amazing guy. One of the like ongoing debates amongst fans regarding the impaled scene is who actually impaled the young native. And there's one argument that the girl was impaled by her own community because during the rape scene, we can see natives hiding in the bushes, watching the sexual assault and that the girl was later killed because she was no longer sexually pure. And then there's the other argument that, um, the woman was killed, uh, by you guys to sensationalize your documentary. Um, and I was wondering, as someone who was involved in the project and who's actually read the script, uh, who the actual killers are. Wow, that's fascinating. I'm glad you told me that. I, I, I don't keep up with the discussions. Um, you know, my understanding was that it was her community that did it. Mm -hmm. The irony about that to me is that that's much more of a Christian thing, I think, or maybe even, you know, a primitive Jewish thing and certainly a Muslim thing than it is in many other cultures. You know, somehow Western civilization makes a big deal out of virgins, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it's a big deal, you know? Not only the 72 virgins you get if you die killing infidels, if you're Muslim, but you know, Jesus's mom was a virgin. That's a big deal for them. So the fact that that made it into this script in this way um, I find kind of ironic and maybe not altogether um, 
uh, consistent, I think, with the action. I don't know. I don't know what those people think of sex down there, but I know what white people think of it. So um, I, I actually like the argument that we did it in order to make the movie more sensational. I like that. Argument. I like that. I would like to bring that out, uh, you know, in the uh, director's cut. <laughs> There's never going to be a director's cut. There's barely a, an original cut. But um, I've always kind of leaned towards the idea that you that the filmmakers were the ones that did it, because you guys gang rape her. So it, to me, it doesn't seem that far fetched that you guys would do something. And you guys burned down a village. So it seems like there's no boundary of like you guys don't have any sense of like moral or ethics and. Uh, and and then when it's you your think? scene, <laughs> when it's your guys, when it's your scene, looking at it, you're kind of like enamored and impressed with this impaled girl. And then it's not until someone says we're filming that you're like, oh, I have to act like I care about this. And so I I always kind of thought it was you guys that did it. So I think it's an interesting. Uh... Well, you know what, Jonathan Doe, um, why don't you and me? Why don't we just you know settle this right now that. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. We did it, and we're, let's just go with that story from now on. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> um. So after the film was complete and you returned back to the states, how long was it before you finally got to see a finished cut of the film? Twenty years. Really? Yeah. Well. Um... So uh, a lot of actors in New York are waiters, and I was a waiter. And while I was a waiter, uh, this wealthy woman came in and picked me up and took me home. And um, I lived with her for four years. <laughs> That's another story. It's a good one. Um, and uh, she was a literary agent, and she really didn't like me being a waiter because you're out all night. And she got me a job uh, reading books for publishers and that turned into a job reading books for movie companies and um like i said uh, about a month after i got back she and i broke up and so about a year later i was living in hell's kitchen and i was working for united artists and mgm and a bunch of other studios and i'm walking down the hall in united artists one day and um i hear somebody going holy fuck oh my oh oh i can't fucking believe it something like that and i go over and i'm like god what happened did you cut your thumb off or you know did you put your eye out what happened i never i didn't know this guy i didn't know this guy he goes you got to see this come over here you got to see this and spread across his desk is all the production skills of cannibal holocaust <laughs> because ua was about to do the, <laughs> the american release of cannibal holocaust and and I said, wow, that looks familiar. I go, hey, wait a minute, look, see that right there? That's me. And he looks at it with a, you know, with an eyeglass thing and magnifier. And he looks at me, he goes, holy shit, that's you. I still have this guy's name somewhere. <laughs> he said, he said, I promise I'll get you all the production photos you want. He never did. Because before he could do that, before they did it, and they backed out of the deal once a Ruggiero was got in legal trouble. And it never got the distribution here, but it did get um, a week. It played for a week in um, in New York, and that's where my friend saw it. Uh, uh, I say he's my friend. I haven't talked to him in probably twenty years, but he 
he directed, um, I forget his name now, he directed Idle Hands, mm -hmm. which I was in a little bit. And um, he saw it when he was a teenager in New York City, saw Cannibal Holocaust. My sister was living in Tokyo. She, uh, they love this movie in Tokyo. I, I wish I could get a, a, you know, a ride to Tokyo to do a, a convention there because I would make lots and lots of, uh, of money there. Um, she saw it there. She left. She didn't want to see me die. So she never saw the end. And, um, but meanwhile, little me man, couldn't get a hold of it. In fact, I was pretty sure that I would never hear of this thing again. You know, um, we shot it out in the middle of nowhere where nobody I knew would ever hear it. And then it went back to Europe and America. We don't care about European movies. And, um, and I thought it was just one of those one-offs that they'll go away. And it's the one that won't go away. <laughs> so I finally saw it when, um, I, I finally did see it, uh, then, uh, when he sent me that dupe of a dupe of a dupe and then Bumrowski and Sage Stallone, um, uh, you know, put together their 25th anniversary DVD. And that's what launched me into the, the circuit. And then, uh, some British company, called Shames, I think, did a, um, a Blu-ray edition that they, they had me and Francesca do a, uh, uh, you know, a commentary uh, on it. So we actually had to sit and watch it. I actually covered my eyes for a good part of it, so I didn't have to see the turtle again. I did see the turtle. I'm sorry I did. Um, but, yeah, that's how long it took. So I've seen it basically twice, one on Fast Forward, once uh, peeking through my fingers. So was the... It's not my kind of movie. <laughs> it's just not my kind of movie. Was it the 25th anniversary edition where where the guys from uh, Grindhouse Releasing contacted you that you became aware that you're kind of a uh, an underground horror celebrity? And that there's a following behind that film? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Sage says to me, yeah, and now, and, and now, you know, because they came up and did, you know, the interview that's on that disc, and, um, and I'm like, okay, okay. In fact, I thought, okay, you know, he's the son of a movie star. I've known a lot of those guys. They're hampered by the fact that they can never live up to their old man. You know, some people like Charlie Sheen, you know, uh, gets to make a career anyway, you know, somehow. And some of them, you know, do that. But a lot of a lot of sons of stars are uh, just lost people. And and then uh, Bob Morosky, I had no idea who he was. And I don't know. Do you know who he is? Do you know that he's the editor on the Spider-Man movies and all that stuff? I didn't. I didn't know that. Do you know this? No. Yeah, look up Bob. He he won an Oscar for he and his wife Chris cut um um uh, Hurt Locker. Hurt, Hurt Locker. No, Hurt Locker. Yeah, Bob. Bob and his wife uh, were the editors on that movie. That's awesome. Okay, so Bob and Sage came to Palo Alto to do an interview with me. They came to do the interview with me, and and I thought they were like film school students doing uh, a film school project. You know, mm -hmm. I just had no respect for them. I, I had no idea that anybody had even seen it, much less cared about it. And um, <clears throat> and I decided that I would humor them and then they arrived here with uh another guy named john Gulliger, who was running the camera that day who had just won 
one of those TV things where you pitch your script and they don't do it anymore. I don't know why, but you pitch your script and then if you win, they, they make your movie or something like that. So we're standing out on the corner of, of uh, Hamilton and Alma in Palo Alto where my wife and I owned a, uh, an art gallery. We shot that in the art gallery that we owned. And the art in that uh, interview with me is my wife. She, she did that. Okay, so there's Sage. I'm like, you know, here's a rich kid who's got nothing better to do. There's Bob with his, like, long, shaggy hair. I have no idea. Nice guy. But do the interview. And then uh, they call me a little bit later, and Sage says, and now we want to take you to uh, uh, New York to uh, go to the Chiller Convention. I'm like, oh, I don't even know what that is. And he goes, well, it's, you know, it's a horror movie convention. I said, oh, okay. Um, what am I going to do there? He goes, well, you're going to meet your fans. <laughs> and I'm like, you, you know, it, it, it's like if, if, if a couple of people walked into your house today and said, oh, by the way, we're your real parents, you know, your mind would go, hey, what, 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 you know? My, my fans, how, how can there be fans? I mean, I haven't even seen this movie. How can there be fans? He said, You're, it's just going to blow your mind. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it turns out that one of the things Sage liked to do, and he was a great guy, uh, one of the things he liked to do was find actors who, you know, had moved on and kind of uh, bring them back out into the limelight. And I was one of those. And, you know, we went there. And the next thing I know, I'm on stage with, what's his name? Robert Kerman. And then some guy asking questions. And uh, uh, here's a weird little side thing to that. Um, I have a stepdaughter who lives in New York City. And she had just, I think she'd just gotten engaged to this guy, maybe. Maybe they were just still dating and they came to the show and saw this interview so this kid who became my son-in-law his introduction to me is me talking about cannibal holocaust <laughs> <laughs> it's all just so silly you know uh what was it like it's uh it was a little terrifying at first because there's a costume at these uh conventions you know all the black shirts and the weird makeup and the, you know, the people acting like, uh, like gore doesn't bother them. And they like dead babies and stuff. And then they, uh, most most of these people turn out to be very, very sweet and, uh, not a threat at all. And, uh, the only ones I really worry about are these very nervous moms who come in with their little 15 year old sons who can barely speak, you know, who stand like a, three feet from the table. They're kind of shiny and sweaty and oily. And they just like, look at me, you know? And uh, the mom says, I don't know what to do with him, you know? Ever since my husband left, he just stays in the basement and watches these movies. So I thought I'd bring him here. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> don't bring him here, you know? Bring him to the hospital. You got it, really, you got to get some help for this kid. Um, yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> um, but even even those kids turn out, if you just talk to them for a minute, 
they just turn out to be kids, you know. Yeah. Kid, kids looking for uh, what we're all looking for, you know, some entertainment and without knowing it, some meaning. You know, I think we're all looking for some meaning. Uh, were you aware that Cannibal Holocaust is part of an Italian cannibal genre? And that, um, have you seen any of the other cannibal films that are out there? And you doing the convention circuit, did you ever get to meet anyone else? I mean, Robert Kerman was in two other cannibal movies. Um, I was just wondering if you had seen any other cannibal films. So I didn't know there was a genre until... Uh, Bob and Sage showed up because they're, they're that's their whole deal. They love that genre. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know there were more cannibal movies because not my kind of movie. And if I met people from those movies, I wouldn't know. I don't know <laughs> then because I meet people. Actually, I go to the conventions and there's these people with like scans of stuff on their table and lines all the way around the, the ballroom. And, uh, and I look over there and uh, I never heard of them. Yeah, I don't know who these people are, but they have lots of fans and lots of movies. So that's just the way the world is, isn't it? I mean, I could name a whole bunch of stuff that uh, that I enjoy that you've never heard of, you yeah. know, um, probably because it's, you know, not in your wheelhouse. And uh, that's just the way there's a, there's a philosopher named Alan Watts. And Alan Watts says it takes all kinds because we never know what kind we're going to need. <laughs> and um, I don't know what day it's going to be when we need fans of cannibal holocaust <laughs> or what the circumstances in the culture is going to be but let's just pretend like uh, one day it will be shown um so after cannibal holocaust you went on uh to be in several hollywood productions like jack the bear ghost in the machine apollo 13 and idle hands and I was wondering, yeah. what was the transition like from being on the set of Cannibal Holocaust to the world of Hollywood? And did the role of Alan Yates uh, prepare you in any way for those future endeavors? How did being in Cannibal Holocaust uh, change things for me? It made me not fear the camera. Uh, it, it gave me enough experience in front of the camera. It gave me two two levels of experience. One is... I, I, I bear. Okay. So when you're shooting, okay. So when you're on stage, when you're working on stage, the thing you need to do is to find your light and stay in it. You got to stay in the light. When you're on film, you got to let the camera see you, you know, you don't, unless the director wants to do something, you got to make yourself available for the camera to see you and people will shy away. It's interesting to watch people, you know, who are new at it because the emotion, the, the real human emotion to hide makes you like turn away from the camera. So, so I learned not to do that. And, but more than that, here's what I learned. I learned what it means, what it feels like for 35 impatient men standing in the sun, in the humid sun, waiting for you to get it right. And what it means to have that kind of scrutiny and that kind of pressure and what it means to uh, find the part of yourself that, uh, you know, because sometimes in those situations you want to just run and hide. You just want to go, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too much. And, but you don't get to do that. I didn't get to do that down there on many levels. 
You know, I, I, I was never going to run through the jungle with my plane ticket and my passport and and uh, and escape uh, Ruggiero's cameras while they killed me. That was never going to happen. Um, um, and I couldn't just bail out of this movie. And I, um, I also couldn't quit in the middle of a shot. So that really, that's probably the thing that I carried forward uh, um, until... Uh, and, and it lasted until Jack the Bear, you know, I was, uh, I was, I had an office on the Fox lot then and the, the studio executive on the, on Jack the Bear was actually somebody I knew well. And she said to me, I heard they cast you in Jack the Bear and you're going to be working with Danny and he's such a big star. Doesn't that make you nervous? And you know what? Like I said, you know, that when those things flash through your mind, here's what happened. I saw her. The day after my first day on the set, in the screening room, watching the dailies from the day before, looking at me, saying, "Uh-oh, look at him! He's so nervous. We gotta, we gotta replace him." Because I've been, I've worked on pictures where that happened. Mm -hmm. So when she said to me, um, uh, "You know, aren't you going to be nervous? You're working such a big star." I said, "No, no. Danny's going to make me a much better actor." And he actually did. That turned out to be true. That turned out to be true. Was it a nice experience working with him? Uh, as an actor, yeah, yeah. As a human being, mm, I've met I've, I've met better adjusted human beings. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think my last question is kind of similar to what you were just talking about, but on a more personal level. So, yeah. Cannibal Holocaust is a film that has caused that causes a very strong reaction to anyone who sees it. Uh, yeah. And it's an experience that is really difficult to forget. And as someone who has spent weeks in the jungle actually living it, um, has being a part of that film left any kind of lasting impact on you as a person? Uh, good question. That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't have anything I can particularly point to. Uh, it's in my nature to sort of downplay things and find the humor in it. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I have a, I, I have a sort of a personal motto that goes something like, um, you know, if I'm not laughing, I'm shooting, you know, because mm -hmm. that range that I connected to in the rape scene, that that's in there, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's in there. so you can't connect to something that's not there. So I know that's in there. So I, I try to use humor too you know, keep that at bay. Uh, doing that movie, uh, it, it probably the most lasting thing is related to what our last subject was, is some kind of confidence it gave me. Um, you know, so much of being an actor is so insecure and knowing that they can fire you at any time and knowing that you don't have control over which take they use. So you can end up, you know, I walk out of movies with people and they talk about how shitty the actor was. Well, the actor didn't have control over what take they used. Mm -hmm. You know, the actor doesn't have any control at all. So it's all very, very, you know, insecure. And, but so then the security, as I've tried to kind of say along the way is how these experiences make you face you, who you are and what you're capable of. And you may not be really, let me put it in the, in the first person. I, I may not 
be really aware of what I'm capable of until I'm in the situation, you know? So having been in that situation and survived and came out with a movie that uh, I don't like, you know, it's not my kind of a movie, but if I watch myself in that movie, there's some moments, you know, there's some moments I, I like. Um, and, and then just the whole, the whole thing surrounding the whole thing and being able to walk into that with nothing and walk out of it with, uh, you know, um, uh, all my limbs and no fatal diseases, <laughs> you know, there's some confidence I got from that, some confidence that I could have probably gotten in other ways. Uh, but that's not how my life went. So that's, that's where I got it. Certainly yeah. made it a lot easier to walk into people's offices when I moved to Hollywood and say, here I am. You yeah. Know? Well, awesome. Do you have any uh, final remarks, last words, or anything you want to plug before we come to a close? Yeah, probably the only thing I can think of is, uh, yeah, just don't take it all too seriously. That's all. <laughs> don't take it all too seriously. Yes, Cannibal Holocaust is what it is. Don't take it too seriously. It's uh it's really just another movie. And it actually has um, a decent underpinning, uh, a cultural underpinning of a statement, which is why I think it has lasted as long as it has. And the, the, the person I know who's exposed that the best is Callum Waddell, who wrote uh, a, a PhD thesis on cannibal Holocaust and then uh, turned that into a book. And he had me, he asked me to do the introduction to the book. And, um, uh, I think he he pulls the um, the cultural echoes of imperialism out pretty cleanly in that book. That's a that's a good one. But but we shouldn't take it all too seriously. Uh, they shouldn't have killed animals. On I, I actually said to S Salvatore, I said to him, "What happened to the magic of the movies? You know, you're going to kill this monkey. Why, why are we doing this? Movies are magical." And uh, he was like, yep, that's what we're doing. But um, so many horrendous things happen to our fellow Americans every day that if you're outraged about this movie, you know, maybe you can take some of that outrage and channel it into something in your daily life and change it to make the world a better place. That's all I got. And if you uh, contact me on Facebook, I'll be happy to sign pictures for you for money. Awesome. Well, thank you, Carl. I enjoyed our conversation and uh, I hope you have a good day. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> you right. too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. If you're interested in checking out my other work, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review obscure, obscene, and controversial cinema, as well as check out my label, Putrid Productions. Until next time, this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club.